Joshua chapter 9. Last week, we were able to go through chapter 8 together, which is the fall of the city of Ai. Remember, they were uh, fooled into thinking they could do it on their own. And then they realized after having been quickly defeated by the army of Ai, at least in a partial defeat, they uh, finally decided, well, we better go to the Lord and find out what to do about this. And, of course, it was then disclosed by the Lord that there was sin in the camp. But they also had been presumptuous in that they thought they could do it without God's help. They decided, well, it would be enough if we just send, oh, a handful of people, say two or 3,000 armed men, because Ai is such a small city compared to Jericho, and they had just come off a great victory in Jericho. They just didn't think they needed God's help. Well, that quickly changed. But they got their act together. They repented. They dealt with the sin, and they sought the Lord. And in chapter 8, they had a great victory in Ai. Now chapter 9 begins another situation that has developed that as they continue to move into the land of Canaan, they are now given another opportunity to seek the Lord's help, but in a much different way. So chapter 9 is going to reveal something about uh, the people of Israel that they needed to understand with regard to uh, their a willingness to believe somebody without checking to see if what is being said is actually so. They should be more apt at this point in time to check with the Lord no matter what the situation may be. And that really is something that we all of us need to do as well. Uh, it's why this book is written, I think, primarily for our benefit. They're examples given to us to know how we should go before the Lord whenever we face any situation, whatever the circumstance may be, whether it's an upcoming battle against the enemy or whether it's uh, trying to discern whether something is right or wrong, true or false, good or bad. And that's the lesson that we will learn here today in chapter 9 as we move forward in this great book of the Old Testament. Joshua chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. And it says, And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills, in the lowland, in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, they heard about it. And they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. So this is a summary, really, of what will take place over the next several chapters. All of the people in Canaan, every one of those various nations that occupied that land, realized that Israel was now in the land and they had better do something about it. So the majority of them began to talk together and determined that it would be best if they united as one instead of separate nations to come against the nation of Israel. That was the plan of most of them. And I think that what we're seeing here in this first uh, couple of verses is an endeavor by the Canaanite people groups to uh, unite, but not all of them, again, did that. In fact, the majority of the rest of this chapter is going to be about a group of people from within Canaan 
who chose a different path. And that path was a path of deception. And so we see in verse 3, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, and they said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. It's an interesting thing that they're doing. They're taking a risk in giving the impression that they have traveled a great distance to come to visit with Joshua in the land of Canaan. And there's one thing that stands out in my mind, actually two. The first thing is, in verse 3, they knew with regard to the defeat of Jericho and Ai. Now that's important. That's something that we will see a little bit later on is a, an area of suspicion, at least it should have been, for Joshua. Secondly, they had disguised themselves as being very distant people from a land that they don't identify. And if it's outside of Canaan, why would they want to make a covenant with Joshua, whose sole purpose was to invade the land of Canaan and occupy that land and defeat those nations? So their premise is based upon an assumption that Joshua is going to conquer the land of Canaan and then perhaps move out of that region and conquer other nations as well. Perhaps. But they were really hiding the truth, obviously, to us it is, because we're told. But from Joshua's perspective and the people who were with him, these men had obviously traveled a great distance because, after all, look at them. They really looked like they had been traveling for a very, very long time. So they were convincing. And that's one of the things that deception does. Deception can be very, very convincing. And we need to be on guard about that. And, of course, we know who the one who is the great deceiver uh, is. And he is the father of all lies, we're told. And deception is his game. And so it's safe to assume that they're on his side. They don't want to really make a covenant with Israel for any other purpose than for simply to save their skin because they knew that they were probably next. Ai is about five miles or so south of this place known as Gibeon. There was a series of cities, we'll identify them later on in the chapter. But Gibeon was occupied by a nation known as the Hivites. Perhaps not all of the Hivites lived there, but all of these who came from Gibeon were indeed Hivites. And the Hivites are one of the nations that are described in verse 1, if you've uh, taken note of that. So they were in line to be eliminated by Israel. And they obviously knew that. They knew the game plan. They knew what they, Israel had done to Ai and what they had done to Jericho. 
and they believed that they were likely next in line. So they needed to act quickly. So they put together this scheme as a, de decept a deception that uh, should not have been successful. However, we'll see that it was. Why? Because Israel didn't go to the Lord. When AI was in their focus and they failed the first time, after a short while, Joshua cried out to the Lord. And he was led by the Lord, spoken to by the Lord on how it was that he was to defeat AI. It's likely that they were in the same way to draw lots in this situation to determine whether or not they should believe this group of men or not. So here we have uh, this development that now they've been presented with a request. This group of men want to make a covenant with Israel. And then they said in verse 8, they said to Joshua, we are your servants. Oh wait, let me go back to, I'm sorry, verse 7, because that's very important. Verse 7 says, then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? Suspicion was there. They weren't sure that these men were from a faraway place. They didn't know for certain that they might possibly be, after all, somebody from one of the nations within the land of Canaan. They expressed their concern because it did sound suspicious. And that was a very good question. How can we make a covenant with you? Because we don't know for certain. You know, that's a good place to start, friends. When you have a sense of doubt, perhaps that's the Spirit of God in you telling you, let's take another look at this before we move any further. Whenever we face that kind of situation where it needs a good element of time and an amount of discernment that's available to us by the Spirit of God, why would we not take advantage of that? Why would they not have taken advantage of it? They should have. God had been speaking to Joshua in very specific detail. Why would they not have taken that step? Probably for one reason and one reason alone. They figured, well, it looks right. Everything that they've said can be backed up by the eyesight, the physical evidence. That's a dangerous thing. Never be led by anything but by faith. Not by sight, but by faith. Not by fear, but by faith. Always, this is the way that God wants us all to be in our daily living. He wanted them also, and he's teaching them here again that this is what they need to do. They need to depend on him no matter what situation may arise. So they asked that valid question, where are you from? How do we know? And so they said in verse 9 to him, from a very far country, again, they're not identifying where, they're just saying a very far country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who was at Asher, Ashtaroth. Now, they're referring to things in the past. 
Egypt over 40 years prior. The two kings that they mention had been recently killed and destroyed and their cities invaded, but that was before they actually entered into the land. Those things were old news. They did not mention Ai and Jericho. And I suspect that the real reason that they didn't was they must have assumed that if they would have mentioned Ai and Jericho, it would have raised the level of suspicion among the Israelites. How do you know about that? Because that just happened. If you've been traveling from a far country, you wouldn't have gotten word about those things. So what gives? But they didn't do that. They were very, very smart in hiding that knowledge that they had about Ai and Jericho. So, so far, the deception is working. And it says in verse 11, Therefore, our elders, they're still talking to Jericho, to uh, Joshua, Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours, we took hut from our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now, look, it's dry and moldy. Physical evidence. See, this proves what we're saying. And these wineskins, which were filled when, we, when they were new, see, they're torn. And these are garments, and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. Very, very convincing. And deception can be very, very convincing. And by the way, you know, it's probably, from my perspective, I think I can be deceived very easily by others. But I think I can be more deceived by myself. Self-deception is a very real thing for me, and I pray it is very, very serious for all of us to consider that perhaps deception can begin in us, and we can be misled by our own thoughts, our own desires, our own preferences, our own will instead of God's will. But these were external, and they were giving external evidence of this fact that they say they have been on a great journey, and all of the proof that they have given are very, very visual and convincing. So, it says, Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, in verse 14, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. Big mistake. They looked at their provisions. They looked at their wineskins. They looked at their bread. They looked at their clothing and their sandals. And they saw, okay, they must be telling the truth. But they never, ever went before the Lord. That verse 14 stands out to me as a critically important verse in this whole passage. And again, as an example to us, we need to pay attention to verse 14. You've got to remember, they did not take counsel from the Lord. But we always should. Let it be known among us, as people who want to go to the Lord before we make any rash decisions. So verse 15 continues and says, So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. So they're binding themselves. They're swearing in the name of the Lord that they will enter into a covenant with this people. And he made peace with them. And that was a very, very bad mistake. Because in verse 16, 
It only took three days for them to find out the truth. It says, verse 16, And it happened at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were actually neighbors who dwelt near them. That must have been a real surprise. It must have been something that didn't settle very well in Joshua's mind or in the minds of all the people. Look what we have done. We have made a covenant with a nation that God wanted us to eliminate. That's shameful that they would have done so. They must have felt so, so very guilty, so remorseful over their mistake, their foolishness, their lack of turning to God when they should have. All of these things must have been going through their mind, and, and quite frankly, that's exactly how it should be for any of us who have made the same kinds of mistakes that these people have made. Whenever we have fallen into a trap like this, and then we realize that it was indeed a trap, well, there's no turning back. But these people made a covenant, and they've got now to stand with what they have said. As difficult, as uncomfortable as that may be, as unfortunate as that will be for them, that is what they will do. Now, the Gibeonites are in what will ultimately become a portion of the tribe of Benjamin. All of the cities of the Gibeonites were located in that territory of uh, Benjamin. And uh, they are going to be in the story of the Old Testament all the way through until David's time. And we'll see a little bit more of that as we come to a close in tonight's study. But I wanted to make sure that you understand that the thing that Joshua spoke in terms of a covenant and making peace was something that they adhered to. They did not deviate from that. Not them, but a later generation did. So in verse 17, Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day, and now their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath, Jarim. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation complained against the rulers. Why? Well, partly it might have been because they knew it was God's will to destroy them, and they were told they could not. And so that really did not settle very well with the armies of Israel. They wanted to conquer and be obedient to all that God had told them to do. But that's not really the only reason, I think. Remember, they had taken spoil in Ai, and all of the spoil belonged to them from this point on. God was to take the spoil in Jericho, but every other conquering, conquered city would be uh, the spoils of the people that they could take for themselves. So it's partly because of that that they lost out on the spoils that could have been theirs, but also because I think of the fact that God wanted them to destroy this people, but they could not. Their hands were tied. And then all the rulers, in verse 19 it says, said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore, we may not touch them. They made a covenant. They swore by the name of the Lord God of Israel. And using God's name in a vow like this was binding. You can look at this and realize that the leaders of Israel were very, very wise 
in not turning from the covenant that they had made. They were unwise in making the covenant. But they really did exactly as they should have once the covenant was made. But it's interesting to note, we swore to them by the Lord God of Israel. You know, in the New Testament, we see the words of Jesus. And he's talking about when you're talking to somebody, let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Don't swear by the temple. Don't swear by the money in the temple. Just let your yes be yes, and your no, no. That is the principle under which we now live. And it's a principle that stands throughout all of our days as far as God is concerned. He wants us to be honest in our statements. If we say yes, then our word means our word. And that's the way it should be. Unfortunately, that's not the way it is for a lot of people in the world today. And it's very hard to find people who are willing to agree on a handshake anymore. There was a time when that did happen. And it was based upon the principle that Jesus himself had set in the New Testament scriptures. Well, before the New Testament came, they made vows, and they always made vows before the Lord, and their vows were to be kept. Their covenantal arrangements were to be agreed upon and established for as long as the covenant was intended. Some covenant arrangements um, were for a lifetime. Others were for a period of time. But they were covenant arrangements nonetheless, and they would need, under the law of God, to be very careful to stay within the bounds of that covenant that they had made. That's what Joshua and his rulers, his elders, are doing here. Verse 20 says, This we will do to them. Now, we've made this covenant, but we're still going to make sure that we have some degree of control over this people. And that's what they're going to be doing in this passage that we're looking at next. In verse 20, again, it says, This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the ruler said to them, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. Then Joshua called for them, and he spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell near us? Why would you lie to us like that, he's saying? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So Joshua is letting them know that their lives have been spared, but they are going to be servants of the people of God all of their days. Woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the temple. Wherever the temple might be, they hadn't really come to that knowledge where the temple was going to be, but the tabernacle was in the land of Canaan. And wherever the Lord intended for the tabernacle to reside, that is where the Gibeonites must serve the Israelites as water bearers and woodcutters for the purpose of providing that which is necessary in the worship of God at the tabernacle, at the altar, and all of the various requirements of the Levites in maintaining those things. So they've got this now responsibility, and it tells us in verse 24, So they answered Joshua and said, 
because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. So the answer to the first question that Joshua asks, why have you done this? They did it out of fear. And that's justifiable in a sense. You have to feel sort of sorry for these people because they knew that it was either do this or die. So they did something that was deceptive and it worked and it caused them to be able to continue to live, although in servitude to the nation of Israel. But, as far as they were concerned, that was the better option. So you have to respect this people for their decision to do this. So we have two different sides of this issue. One, on the side of the Israelites, they should not have been deceived. Two, on the side of the Gibeonites, they did well to do what they did to protect themselves from a terrible destruction that was certain to happen if they hadn't done that. So then he goes on now in verse 25 and he records for us the fact that they also say this, and now here we are in your hands, do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. So they're agreeing with Joshua. All right, we agree with everything you ask of us. Just let us live. And that's good enough for us. And so in verse 27, we, or 26, it says, So we did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel, so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. Now, the, the book of Joshua was written after Joshua's uh, lifetime. It may have been written uh, during the time of the judges, possibly by Samuel. It may have been written later than that. We don't know. But the key here is to this day. And we know that if it was beyond Samuel and say perhaps Ezra who would have written this, Ezra would have known that the Gibeonites were no longer a people in his day. So that's why we should probably conclude that Joshua may have written the majority of this book of Joshua, but must have been appended to by probably Samuel later on. So, that having been said, what did happen to the Gibeonites? Well, you've got to go all the way through to the book of 2 Samuel to find the answer to that. So if you'll turn there with me to chapter 21 of 2 Samuel, we'll take a look at the time of David, when David now is king over all Israel. And it's interesting to note that Saul, during his 40 years of reigning in Israel, battled with many of the nations around him, the Philistines, uh, the people from Tyre and Sidon, the Moabites, and others. Also, he battled with the Gibeonites. Now, they were, again, in the territory of Benjamin. And you may recall that Saul, the very first king of Israel, was a descendant of Benjamin. He was a Benjamite. And it is told to us that he went and destroyed the Gibeonites. 
left hardly any of them there. It was an almost complete destruction. God did not command him to do that. It looks as though he did it out of revenge. But now in verse 1 of second, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 21, we read these words. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. So God gives the answer to David why this terrible drought was taking place. By the way, David went to God very, very often for almost everything. He must have learned some of the mistakes that were made by Joshua that he himself did not want to make. So most often, especially when he went into battle, should I go, Lord, or should I not go? And he waited for the answer of the Lord. And sometimes the answer was yes, sometimes the answer was no. But he always, apparently, wanted to know God's will. That is a very, very good example to us. Always do likewise, my friends. Seek the Lord's will in everything. And in this case, there was a famine in the land. And so David was thinking, something's gone wrong here. The Lord has blessed us so much, and now all of a sudden we're seeing this drought, and we have no understanding as to why this drought has come upon us. So what he does, the very first thing he does, again, is the right thing. He goes to the Lord, and he inquires of the Lord, and the Lord answered him. And so now in verse 2, we're told, the king called the Gibeonites, and spoke to them. Now David is the king. He called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. And now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. So again, we're reminded that Saul did something that he should not have done. And God now is retaliating through this terrible famine but he's now approached the Gibeonites to find out how can we deal with this in a peaceable sort of way. So in verse 3 he says, Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, Whatever you say, I will do for you. They're very, very good in their response. They don't want to retaliate. They don't want an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. They don't want to be vindicated. They just want a fair representation among the people of Israel. Now, we don't need to go on to the story any further than that, but just know this. What God had intended for Gibeon was that they may continue to be servants in the house of the Lord, and they were faithful to that. Throughout scriptures in the Old Testament, from the time of Joshua until the time of Second Samuel, there is no evidence of any effort by the Gibeonites to rebel against Israel. And again, the only reason they lost many of their men was in a battle that was initiated by Saul because of his just simply wanting to destroy them for no good reason. David is a man of God, a 
man of prayer, a man of faith. He is a man who says, I want to find out what is happening here. I want to get to the bottom of this. And the only way that I can know is by seeking God's help. May it be, my friends, that every situation we find, we have to face many circumstances, many trials, many discouragements may come our way, many subtleties may be presented in the form of deception by the enemy of our souls. We need to be careful not to go ahead of the Lord, whether it's the battle of Ai or the dealing with the people of Gibeonites or any other situation. Let us be mindful of how it is that God wants us to respond. Go to Him. Seek Him. Proverbs chapter 6 is where I'd like to end with tonight. Proverbs chapter 6 is perhaps a verse that most of you all already know pretty well. It's a wonderful proverb, and it's got a wonderful statement that is very central to what we're looking at here today. Proverbs chapter 6. And it's kind of embarrassing because it's not where I'm thinking it was, but here's the gist of what I wanted to share. The proverb that I'm looking for, and perhaps some of you may already know what the verse and chapter are, and you can refer to that later. But he says, lean not on your own understanding. That's a simple statement. Lean not in your own understanding. Trust in the Lord and he will, he will make it away, make a way for you. That's the idea that we should have always encountered every situation with, that we can trust in the Lord and he will deliver us as we do so. Trust in the Lord with all your strength. And in that, we close tonight's meeting. May God bless you and grant you peace in Jesus' name. Amen.